Hello and welcome to PodShout. PodShout is a podcast series that will bring to you, our valued listeners, interviews covering a wide range of topics. We have three main channels, property and business. We will bring to you a range of conversations with some of this country's leading property experts and business leaders. Inspiring people. We will bring to you interviews with inspirational individuals from around the world who've achieved greatness and inspire others to do so. And finally, our third channel will be more of a philosophical set of podcasts about life, its challenges, and some of the views from our host Greg Sugar's upcoming book, Life in Twos. We hope you enjoy this series, which is available from wherever you get your favourite podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Podshout, and you can see what's coming up in future episodes. Or come and visit us at our website, www.podshout.com.au. Our guest today is without doubt one of the most respected and sought-after property professionals in Australia. Greg Preston's career in property has spanned over 35 years and he is one of only 49 recipients of Life Fellowship at the Australian Property Institute in its almost 100-year history. I asked Greg to join our PodShout series today given the unprecedented changes and challenges facing the property industry in Australia and indeed worldwide. Full disclosure here, during the daytime in my day job, Greg and I are colleagues, but I respect him greatly and his opinions are so sought after that I thought it was important that he shared them with our audience. Welcome to PodShout, Greg, and thanks for joining us and our listeners. Thanks, Greg. Um, if you think back of the last... 35 years to the days when you were a university student um, and studying property, did you ever dream you'd see a set of circumstances that have unfolded at the moment with the COVID situation? Is it that long? 35 years? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, to, be, to, to the point, um, that's just extraordinary, correct? Like mm. it's, uh, to sit and think that uh, we've gone into this with such a sudden decline um, and so much sort of uh, uncertainty around what's going on. It's just, uh, as I say, it's extraordinary. And we haven't finished yet because no, you know, we really no, don't know what's going to happen after September. No, it's, um, look, it's, it's front of mind for everybody because, like, when JobKeeper finishes, I think, 27 September, um, uh, the, uh, the new equilibrium will be found in the marketplace for all sorts of things. And I think um, I was just in a, another conference call a moment ago just talking about these issues in terms of... Um, tenant impact, cash flow impact from tenants, what's the rent going to be for certain types of property in the, you know, once the cycle sort of evolves a bit more? Yes. Well, market rent I'm talking about. Market rent. As opposed rent. to waivers and deferrals under the code, Commonwealth yeah. Code. So. And one of the things we see in the papers is, oh, the property market's going to change by X percent, but the property market doesn't uniformly do the same thing in all the different sectors or locations, either. No, look, um, the people we're talking to day by day at the moment, the industrial markets are holding up because hmm. warehousing is continuing on. Yes. You know, people are shopping from home and things all, goods have got to be stored before they're delivered, obviously. So, um, But, you know, it's more the, the uses where people have... Um, uh, aggregating, you know, restaurants, bars, um, yes. hotels, look, the airline industry, all those industries where it's just virtually stopped with a thud is where the, the much of the, the pain is being be. yeah. felt. And it's where cash flows are being impaired in property that are leased to those entities as well. Mm. And on the 7th of April, the Prime Minister announced the the theory of the commercial code of conduct and then he handballed it over to the states to implement the legislation and regulations. Um so firstly, do you think the, the commercial code was a good idea? 
I do. Um, yeah. Look, something had to happen to um, uh, try and bring some certainty into the market. Um, I'll come back to the issue of the way the states have Yeah, the, I'd like moment, to hear that, yeah. yeah. Um, but look, if you just look at the code itself, um, it, uh, there's perhaps one part of it that I would have written a little bit differently. And look, admittedly, it was done in a very short space of time as the as we sort of moved into this world we're in. Um, and I think the, the Commonwealth's done a pretty good job with putting it out there. But the, the issue of the um, waivers and deferrals relative to a lease term certain or the, you know, the part of a lease before an option, um, really, it would have been great if the code had mentioned that the um, lease, any waiver or option can only be offered within the term certain, yes. which would have encouraged the part encourage the parties to at least to extend the term. Um, job just to jump, jumping in there, yeah. we, we talk about term certain. Someone's leased a shop for five years. Yeah. We're three years in, so the term certain is two, two years left. Correct. Yeah, okay. and, and say the waivers and deferrals for the COVID pandemic period, undefined, but most people are saying until 27 September till job cooper ends, then the, the code talks of a reasonable recovery period. Yes. And then there's this deferral period beyond that. So, you know, just imagine you've got two years to run, but if you analyse periods of three periods of time, it might be four years. Before, so, yeah. So what that, the problem that's created is um, that people are reading it that way and it becomes a, the, the landlord of a property could well become just a quasi debt provider to a tenant that vacates. Yes. It's complicated. So when we talk about the code, there's two parts to it. So say somebody's turnover had um, gone down by 50% and they apply for relief under the code. Yep. How does that apply to that 50%? Um, the, uh, half of it is to be attributed to a waiver. Yes. Rent for, a period, for the period of the pandemic and the other half is a deferral. Um, yes. But it's, uh, you're sort of touchscreen on the application of it in the context of the states. Yeah. Well, that's where it gets... Um, Really confounding. I, I'm a bit, um, bit of a glutton for punishment, but I've done a lot of reading on what happened in, leading into the um, the uh, depression in the 1930s, and then also rent relief after post World War Two. Yes. Um, and uh, interestingly, the Commonwealth got into a similar situation post World War Two with yeah, right. uh, landlord and tenants legislation, where the Commonwealth ordained that um, there should be landlord and tenant relief. In fact, they went to the trouble of creating a piece of Commonwealth legislation then realised that the states had to There's roll it out into real property laws in the states, and the states challenged it back then. Right. So what we're going through now, and the way it's been sort of rolled out in legislation and regulation in the states is um, very similar to the post-World War II. Yeah, um, different in every state? Different in every state. Yeah. I mean, uh, my view is that in 2020, Australia can do better. Yeah. Know, really, um, yeah, like, the fact that... Um, yeah, the, the key principles, there's 14 principles in the Commonwealth Code, and the key ones that have um, been sort of universally adopted to a point is the fact that the tenant can't be terminated, tenancy can't be terminated, guarantees can't be claimed, and rent increases can't happen. That's all. Yes. But it's beyond that into the waivers and deferrals where they've all run completely differently in terms of application of it. And we said like before that um, different classes of property have been, um, will have responded differently and we talked about the industrial sector. Uh, if you were a uh, owner of um, a retail strip or something like that, um, longer term, um, given what we're seeing and particularly, I suppose it really depends on your tenancy mix too or whether mm -hmm. the um, 
and, and and one of the things that we probably always to, always used to say in property is that you know having a blue chip tenant was all you really could ask for. But if the blue chip tenant was in an industry that's been affected by the pandemic, and they've had to shut down, then maybe they're not the best tenant for the yeah. for the property. But longer term, the effect on yields. Um, how do you see that playing out? I think when you value any investment property, Greg, like DCF said done today, you sort of think about the cash flow yes. for, for a 10-year holding period, which is the way most people do their discounted cash flows, you know, the primary valuation method. Um, and then you're talking about the terminal value. Um, so the the terminal value is where you're capitalising off into the future. Um, and how, how are capital rates going to look going forward? Um, it's sort of a little bit circular because we've got this immediate cash flow impairment as a result of waivers and deferrals little foresight into the next part of the uh, rollout of all this economy in terms of what the market rents are likely to do. Yes. Um, which, you know, again, I, I think they'll hold up better in industrial and perhaps office. I mean, that's most people saying it. But cap rates, you know, we're in a very low interest rate environment. Yeah, it's lower than we've ever seen before, isn't it? Yeah, well, certainly in our careers. Yeah, well, in my lifetime, I would think. But, um, you know, like the, the last wave of monetary policy happened just as we went into the um, COVID economy um, or the pandemic, and um, which, which brought the cash rate down to a quarter of a percent. Um, so you, you just think about that um, uh, in the context of the cost of capital and discount rates on property. Yes. Um, and you know, like I think um, the disc the cap rates haven't really moved yet. And another important factor in this market, and there's very little transaction evidence, yes. leases and or um, sales that you can analyse in the COVID world. So um, I've heard someone say this morning, it's sort of like we're in that first bit of a shell-shocked period in the, as we went into late 2007 into 2008 of the GFC. Yeah, um, well, I was going to touch on the GFC, yeah. and you and I have both been around long enough in this industry. We were around in 1991, yeah. uh, the recession we had to have, and the GFC, mm. and there's some fairly different fundamentals mm. this time around with the shock that we're having to the markets. Um, I mean, you remember back in 1990 and 1991 what the interest rates were? Yeah, um, I can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, um, like, we, we kicked our business off in late 88. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, at that time, I think um, the 10-year bond yield got to about 13.5%. Yes. Um, people were borrowing money on, like, just buying housing, you know, anything from 15, 16, 17%. And yeah. development funding was at 20, not at yeah. 20%. Yeah, yeah. Um, transactions were still happening. It's just yes. the debt cost was much greater in them. And then that meant, like, with development sites, land values were lower. But, um, you know, the, the, the times we're sort of heading into, the parallels with the early 90s, sort of, when, you know, markets were on a high. Um, and I can remember... Some interesting assets back then, um, one of which was the Sheraton on the Park Hotel and the um, Tattersall's office building, which is all part of one development. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it cost about north of 600 million to build, and um, we were given valuations by others who I won't say who they were, you know, that are in the high 600s. And at the, the peak of the market, at the peak of the market, yeah. And then six months later, we got asked to value this thing and put 310 odd million on it. Um, and got screamed at from pillar to post. Mm. Um, but did it uh, sell? Yeah, three hundred and forty. Yeah, so you're pretty close. Eh? Yeah. So, um, look, that's the sort of corrections. I think we've valued Graven a place in Sydney, the office tower down and towards the rocks at the time, and um, you know it was nudging the billion dollar mark as an asset back in the early nineties, and then it uh, corrected to probably half that. Um, yes. You know, incentives 
in office spaces, uh, in office space lettings around the time were in the high forty percent. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Just, we're not at that level. We're not at yet. that level, no. no. But we've seen that in some of the markets in Australia, and particularly even leading into the GFC. Mm. Uh, sorry, into this situation um, post GFC, like places like Perth, where mm. we've got whole office buildings that were still sitting, you Correct, know, relatively yeah. vacant, and yep. the incentives and the discounts on uh, rent. Well, I mean. We've all been working from home for 12 weeks now and um, there's a lot of talk about will people come back into the office towers. Mm. We're sitting here in Market Street, Sydney, and um, there's not many people around the city, the city at the moment still. Yeah. Well, compared to three or four weeks ago, Chris, probably a lot. Yes, yes. <laughs> you, want, you do wonder about the future of offices war over the, um, than, say, industrial. I mean, retail went into this pandemic um, with the, all of the issues going on around sort of online retailing. and It, it was already and, having a structural change anyway, it wasn't was, it? yeah. And this has probably just kicked it along yeah. a bit more. Um, I think you just have to go out and look at some of the big regional shopping centres and they're actually really not shopping centres. They're entertainment destinations they are, they are, and they're changing. Yeah. The, the face of them is changing anyway. Uh, and look, I think um, yeah, they, I think, will probably come back to a point because people want to get out and shop yes. and that sort of thing. But um, just coming back to the office markets, you know, like... Um, the, the days of people sitting on top of each other in very small workstations, I think, are well and truly gone. Yes. Um, you know, in the old days of old, probably predating both of our careers, people sat in big offices with yes. walls around them. Yes. Um, well, they there. probably used to smoke in their offices you know, as well. Well, <laughs> well, one of my first bosses at Collier's many years ago... Um, we used to get into the office about 7.30 in the morning and just reek of cigars. Cigar. <laughs> he was smoking sort of nine-inch long stogie of a morning. But, uh, but those days are different. Yes, certainly have changed. Part two of today's Podshout interview will be coming up in just a minute. Podshout proudly supports one of the world's most celebrated children's charities, the Christina Noble Children's Foundation. CNCF is dedicated to serving the physical, medical, educational, emotional needs of vulnerable children. In the 30 years it's been operating so far, CNCF has assisted almost 1 million vulnerable, exploited, abused and at-risk children and their families. If you would like to help, please go to www.cncf.org forward slash donate. Now for part two of today's Podshout interview. I think uh, the other thing, if we talk about then move to the GFC and it was the availability of capital that was a real problem through that. I mean, the structural changes that caused the GFC were all to do with the banking industry and we certainly, there's still plenty of capital around, I believe. Look, that is a very significant difference to back in GFC um, and and even earlier, Mark. Like in the GFC, I think um, going into that, a lot of the REITs were very heavily... um, uh, geared, um, mm. you know, like you know, high 40s and north of that. Um, and uh, because of that, they had to sort of embark on a major capital restructuring. Like Goodman, I think, at the time, and people like that were pulling in capital from overseas to opt to retire debt yes. and just um, to sort of uh, re-weight their capital stack into the next environment. And they've just announced a record profit yeah. and it's just like an amazing story, isn't it? It that's is. That's oh, look, it has been. Like, I, I can remember... Um, Talk about history, uh, valuing one of um, Greg Goodman and Duncan Hardy's first industrial properties in Lansvale in Sydney. Yes. Um, let's go, it's probably 33 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, like you just uh, look at this time around, there's a lot of capital around. Look, Australia is well served by a whole lot of underlying things. When the Kearney government brought compulsory super in, yes. the fact that we've got this uh, amount of superannuation f- around the system. Um, 
uh, for individual retirement, but it's also invested. Yes, yes. And so that capital's available. Um, and you've got a lot of sovereign wealth funds and um, private wealth entities, um, availability of capital. I think the REITs this time around going into this change cycle are, are, are much better off. The larger REITs yes. are very lowly geared in, by comparison to... Compared to where they were, GFC, yeah. Some of them, um, some entities, though, are still highly geared. And I think they're the ones that will probably um, sort of enter a bit of troubled times, mm. particularly where they're, te- they're invested in shopping centres or um, you know, office assets that they're highly geared, you know, because there might be a correction in value. Yes, and with the cash flows being corrected because of COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we've had a Royal Commission since the GFC too, so yeah. the, the banks are probably, uh, you know, if we think back to 1990, probably the biggest vendors of property in Australia were the banks mm. in those days, but post Royal Commission, maybe they'll be, and interest rates being at such low rates, I suppose they probably can afford to let people try and work through the situation yeah. a little bit longer. I, I think they're going to be a little bit cautious in sectors. Yes. Um, yeah, like I, I think um, the, the, the um, office sector, I've heard this morning that uh, you know they're really reducing their loan to valuation ratios yes. in the office sector and, and in some cases valuations are coming in and they're correcting them by 30% down. Yes. So well, we're treating it as 30% less because we, which is interesting if you look at the logic around the way entities tip into COVID with JobKeeper, you know, if their turnover is down 30%, um, uh, you know, it, um, will that resettle the rent at that level of market rent yes. going forward? And, yeah. I mean, that, that's uncertain because it's not across the board. You know, no, it's, it's, it is. It's industry by industry, isn't it? Um, and... You know, given this uncertainty at the moment, one of the things that really has changed um, in worldwide is the application of accounting standards and the way company directors have to value and disclose their assets. And one of the things um, that we quite often see in situations when markets are changing is director valuations, which is where the directors... Um, decide they'll make the decision about what their assets are worth as they're disclosing them to their, you know, for reporting purposes. Mm. Um, do you reckon that would be an advisable thing while the market's doing what it's well, doing? Absolutely. I think, um, but probably just before we get on to the point about director valuations versus independent yes. valuations, Greg, too, um, one of the things that we benefit from this time round when this going on is the fact that um, post the GFC, a lot of work was done around accounting standards and valuation standards yes. to um, uh, account or to, so that there's ways in which things can be valued in uncertain times. Yes. Um, for example, ASB 13, the fair value standard, um, it created a whole mark-to-market logic and it very much mirrors the valuation standards around things like highest and best use and um, su- uh, supporting and observable inputs to, to underwrite valuations. So, um, look, a board, coming back to the point about um, boards and directors um, doing internal valuations, um, it's an interesting time for that to sort of be, play out. Yeah. Um, because, like... Independent valuations, uh, well, at least um, uh, uh, done by experts, will at least sort of reflect as they possibly, best they can the times and so yes. forth. Directors' um, valuations, I think, you know, directors' liabilities and responsibilities, like, um, you know, in terms of um, just even DNO insurance, directors and officers of insurance, I believe that's gone through the roof. Absolutely. In recent times well, the whole insurance year. world has gone nuts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've heard 600% increases with DNO yeah, over the yeah. last week. So, um, but I think, um, you know, the fact that things are going to be marked to market 
um, under the accounting standards. Just, just for our listeners, mark to market, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, when ASB 13 came out, um, uh, prior to the advent of that in 2011, you know, post-GFC, um, an entity, um, let's pick one out of the woodwork, say Caltex had a service station and it was using a service station in the middle of Mossman in Sydney that was zoned residential. They could carry it in their accounts under the old accounting rules as a service as station. As a service now, station. Say yeah. that's $2 million, for yes. example. Um, it may be zoned residential high-rise and have a site value of $8 million. Yeah. But they could carry it under the old rules and only had to mark to market if they decided to change its use and sell it. Right. Um, under... Um, ASB five you know, assets held for sale. So, um, but when the, with um, um, the, uh, the advent of um, ASB third and the fair value standard in two thousand and eleven, yep. obligated now to value it at the eight million. Yes, so at the highest using, and best. Even use. though they're using it. New, yeah. Okay. And, um, with the way land values in Sydney and Melbourne have increased um, over a, a period of time, um, there's probably a lot of benefit to the entity selling it because their rates and taxes are now going to be based on. Um, the higher and better use yes. underlying particular yeah. land value applies. Well, we could, we could have a whole separate discussion about rates and taxes in the different states if we go back to our federation oh, discussion before about yeah. the way the, the code was applied because if you're a landowner uh, in Australia and you've got uh, properties in multiple jurisdictions, it's a bit of a minefield, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's abs- statutory valuation because it's done differently in each yeah. state. It's improved value, land value. Um, the, co- the Commonwealth Code on uh, commercial leasing is very and the other huge issue around that in terms of the Commonwealth trying to um, open up the economy is the fact that the states have got their borders closed. Yes, I mean yeah. it's just you know, it um, beggars belief in terms of um, you know, getting a good outcome and creating some certainty where things are very uncertain. Mm. The fact that states do things differently in Australia is um, you wouldn't really infuriating. Would want, yeah, <laughs> and you really wouldn't want to own a tourism business at the moment, say if you're in Queensland, because oh, no, well, I was just listening to some media this morning um, on the way in the car but guys in Port Douglas with hotels the place is shut down mm. um, and you know like at least if the state borders open you get some sort of domestic Melbourne tra- and yeah. domestic, uh, Sydney people well as you know I came up uh, a couple of days ago up to Sydney here to um, do this and uh, I'm in a 10 storey hotel and there's 10 occupants at the moment so it's terribly uh, you know that the industry is terribly affected um, Greg you know, we've talked about some of the things that are happening at the moment, but as I said, you've you've sort of had a great um, career doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Are there any sorts of assignments that you've looked at that sort of our listeners might say, wow, I didn't even know you'd have to value something like that? Well, um, there's been some fantastic um, things that you, you get involved with over the years, Greg, I think, and uh, it sort of it, it builds. Like if you start dealing with certain complex asset classes, it gets around and people come back to you. Yes. Um, in time, but uh, oh, just well, I, I think um, a couple to mention. Grove Place was the office building. We valued that um, every couple of years from about 1990 through to 2000, and um, it uh, in that period where it did suffer. Um, yes, he would have seen a significant up and, up and down. Yeah, and um, you know, we, we acted for government in that, and the government owned the headless state government at the time, Treasury, and. Uh, uh, there was a cash flow interest in the head lease, um, mm. which we um, had valued at a significant number of around 90 million quite regularly because um, it was a fairly fixed thing. And we got in an 18-month debate with others about what it was worth and ended up winning. I think that's the most satisfying thing. Yeah. When you've got um, a significant transaction on it, it yeah. sort of uh, is complicated through 
um, leases, reading leases and cash flow mm. management. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, um, a lot of people probably listening wouldn't understand just the fact that so many assets, they think the government owns it so no one would ever value it, but... You know, Kirribilli House and um, the Lodge and places like you've probably yeah, done not, those a few times. Oh, but our office has, yeah. yeah. Not personally, but... Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we valued all of Darling Harbour when, um, for uh, all the hotels, shopping centres um, and uh, the all the public assets yes. a long time ago. And I There's think, a shopping um, centre not far from here which uh, has got a big dome on the roof yeah, that you might have had a crack at. Yeah, QVB. Yeah, yeah. Um, always done a lot of headless... Head Lessers' interest valuations and yeah. freehold valuations under head leases. Greg, all of Darling Harbour was at um, Sydney Olympic Park. Most of the mm. assets out there, um, and all the, all the rocks would be the same. The rocks are the yeah. same. All yeah. the hotels and the rocks, um, and uh, but you know they're interesting. But I, I think um, another interesting exercise we did back in two thousand and three was value all of um, Caltex's portfolio yeah. for financial reporting and um, built a uh, fairly. Um, Robust um, multi regression, multiple regression model to value service station assets in, you know, I think it was 1300 on them at the time, but um, that sort of culminated as mm. it's acting for Caltex and valuing the whole portfolio using yeah. that. And they're about to, Chevron, to, rather. Yeah, um, and they're about to become Ampol. They are indeed. <laughs> it's going to be a bit of a change. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be, you'd love to be the sign writer on that assignment. <laughs> well, people are making the signs. Yeah, exactly. Um, Greg, thank you very much for sharing with us today um, some of your uh, journey in the property industry. Um, final question I'd like to ask you, if you were talking to um, maybe a younger person who was thinking of coming into the industry, what would your advice to them be? Valuation's a fantastic profession. Yeah. Um, a lot of people get into property. Um, I could talk all day about this, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people get into property and they want to go straight into the funds market or straight to a developer or whatever but um, I think spending a bit of time in valuation in a firm that um, does a variety of work, yes. um, it stands you in good stead if you want to stick it at that for your career. We get to learn the fundamentals. Absolutely and like a, a, what better vacation to be involved in transactions or yes. banking and finance um, uh, you know, spending a fair bit of time in the office and out of the office, um, mm. you know, it doesn't get much better I don't think. No, I think I think you're right, and I uh, I was talking to the CEO at the Property Institute this morning, and uh, and that's exactly what she said as well. Is that the advice uh, that she'd give young people is that you don't have to end up where you start in the profession. There's yep. just so many places you can go. Yep, yep. Yeah, absolutely. Greg, thanks for your time. Pleasure, Greg, and thanks for the opportunity. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Pod Shout. We look forward to bringing you more episodes in coming weeks and you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podshout to find out what's coming up. Otherwise, visit our website www.podshout.com.au.